0: Chapter 38 of Mabel Ross, The Sewing Girl. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 38 Barbara Strand David Brumbley walked in with a look on his face that said everything for the ugly feelings with which he had come, glared hurriedly around, then brought up with his eyes upon the little odd looking woman who had so readily come forward to meet him. Sudden and complete was the change which followed in the whole appearance of the man. The look of fierceness faded from his eye, the smile of malice from his lip, and abject and deprecatory submission expressed itself in the whole of the outer Brumbly, from the old pinched hat, which he hurriedly removed from his head, to the termination of the turned in nether limbs. Every inch seemed to say he was really too humble an individual to be severely dealt with. What are you here for, David Brumley? were the first words addressed to him by the eccentric visitor, very calmly, yet in a tone that must have assured the sisters that the speaker had the power to call him to an account and was quite resolved to do it. Only doing my duty, Mrs. Strand, abjectly replied the man. Really, a most distressing duty, I, for one. And who has made it your duty to molest sick babies and suffering girls? On the contrary, have I not often cautioned you to deal with such leniently and mercifully? David Brumbly, you have deceived me. You are a hard... Cruel man, you stand convicted at last. You came here to threaten poor young creatures with power you didn't possess, with a course you had no law to sustain you in, and that, if you had, you well knew I would never sanction. You have threatened to turn this poor crippled babe from her home, to take the very bed she lay upon. You have agonized two poor, struggling girls with fear of seeing a dying sister molested. David Brumbly, did you dare do this and not believe in all ruling God must avenge on you the crime? Rather hard language, that Mrs. Strand.' for a man simply in performance of his duty, observed Brumbly, rallying somewhat. I tell you, if one in my position don't hold a tight rein sometimes, he's likely to come out short in his accounts at the end of the year. When was I so strict in your accounts as to force you to acts of oppression? inquired Barbara. When? have I ceased to say to you, above all others, be gentle with poor young women and babes. No, no, David Brumley, you have made cruel threats, and you would have done the cruel things you threatened, thinking Barbara Strand was weak and forgetful and would take no count of your misdeeds. That all power and right had centered in your own hands, and you might abuse it as your bad heart bade you. But there is an end to all this, now. God forgive me that I have let it go on so long. I have aroused myself a second time. You remember the first, and how you begged off with solemn promises never again to slight my injunctions to mercy? and this arousing shall be to the good of many, it can be to the disappointment of one only. You wouldn't do it, Barbara Strand, you wouldn't. Yes, I would. I would take from the hands of a bad man power to do evil. David Brumbly, tomorrow you will make out your accounts and the next day hand them over to me. From that time... All business matters between us are at an end. And is this the reward for my long services? whined the deposed house agent. I have been a faithful servant to you, Barbara Strand. I, for one, have looked more closely to my employer's interests than my own. Barbara waved her hand for him to leave. The whine suddenly changed to a growl. Because I wouldn't let beggarly sewing-girls and their brats live rent-free in your houses? You turn me off without a day's notice? There's no right or justice in this. I, for one, say it's a cruelly unjust act. Again, Barbara waved her hand. Till Wednesday morning, there is nothing further between us, she said. You have breathed too long the atmosphere of innocence that is around these poor orphan children. Go, and she pointed peremptorily to the door. Only another quirk of an addled brain, sneered Brumbley, in a loud aside, as he shuffled to the door. The moon is at its full tonight. Most likely daylight will dispel the fancy. Barbara vouchsafed no reply but remained quite silent until the door had closed upon the unwelcome visitor. Then, turning to Mabel, who, with her sisters, had witnessed with mingled feelings the singular interview, she said, "'Little sister mother, you will see your wolf no more. Compose your babe with promise of this. Tell her that old Barbara Strand will try, so God wills it,' to be the good angel to her and hers that she has so sweetly called her. And now, she added, interrupting the thanks of both the sisters, you must tell me more about that story of wrong I heard from Mrs. Moppet. I heard it before I first came to you, and meant to speak of it then, for, if I mistake not, I know a way to aid you. I forgot it. Forgot it because my thoughts were all on the babe. But it's not too late for it yet. Not too late to write the poor and the fatherless. Tonight I shall remain with Mrs. Moppet, and early tomorrow you must come down and tell me the story. Mabel glanced at Hilda. She had herself no clue to this story Barbara spoke of, but Hilda might have. Of course she was right, Hilda had. "'It was I spoke about it to Mrs. Moppet,' said the latter, a sudden glow on her cheek. "'I will come down to you to-morrow, Mrs. Strand. I will tell you everything.' "'Then I will leave you,' rejoined Barbara. "'Too much depends on my head being clear to-morrow to allow me more time out of my bed. That man was partly right, though not in the way he meant.' Tomorrow may bring back my dreamy way, for it's not often I can shake it off as now. But there was a time when Barbara's head was good at business matters as many a man's. And even now, maybe, when she rouses herself, she can cope with a David Brumbly or a Hugh Kingsley. Little sister, mother. And she gently took Mabel's hand. Brighter days may be dawning for you. If God does not see fit to leave you, your sweet babe, he may, at least, so ordain it that the little light shall flicker its last in a home of comfort and peace. Weep no more. It is a merciful one has you in his hand, and he has tried you and not found you wanting. What more he calls on you to bear... He will give you strength to bear. She pressed the hand of Mabel and Hilda, bent for a moment dreamily over the pillow of little Lily, then slipped quietly from the room. When Hilda went down next morning to the first floor, it was with her story, her long withheld mystery, confided to the ear of Mabel. She could tell it to her sister now, for it was now not only unexpectedly brought forward again and in her presence but under circumstances which seemed to promise the aid she had one time vainly looked for her faith was strong in barbara strand the eccentricities of the little woman were plain to all and the discomforted brumbly had hinted at something more than eccentricities yet there was that about her which inspired confidence and hilda felt assured some good would result from the interview to which she was invited Upon entering the room of Mrs. Moppet, the young girl found Barbara rocking herself in the big chair of her hostess, and undoubtedly under partial influence of that dreaminess which, at most times, obscured her powers of observation and action. The appearing of Hilda, however, served considerably to arouse her, and it was not long before she was giving evidence of all the interest and energy she had exhibited the evening before. The story Hilda related to her shall be given in the young girl's own words, but without the remarks and questions with which Barbara occasionally interrupted it. The Fourth of July last, I was living with my cousin Kingsley. It was warm in the evening, and I sat in the summer house. Cousin Hugh and Cousin Algern walked in the garden, back and forth by the summer house. And before I could think whether they cared to have me hear them talk, they had said things I knew they never meant me to hear, but those things were much to me and my sisters, and I couldn't do less than hear all I could. They were talking about a paper, a paper that Cousin Algin was wanting Cousin Hugh to destroy, but that he said he never could destroy. He said it had existed years without discovery, and was just as safe from discovery now as though it had been put in the flames, or torn into a thousand pieces, and that, while it was still in existence, he felt less reproach to himself. She mightn't quite understand this, he said, but he did. It was a matter of feeling, and he couldn't get over it. Little by little, as the talk went on, I came to understand all about this paper— And that is what I must explain now. My great-uncle, Godfrey Foreman, brought up father and cousin Hugh, who were both his nephews. Father was the oldest and his favorite. He was away when Uncle Godfrey died. Uncle died suddenly from the effect of an accident. And didn't know that, through some cause, Uncle was much displeased with him. After Uncle's death, there was found a will leaving all his fortune to cousin Hugh. Cousin Hugh saw to the settlement of the estate, and when father came home, a while after, he gave him some books that had been uncle's and that he believed father would think much of. The books had been put by in a box, and among them father found a bundle of letters written by himself to his uncle when a boy at school. Father was so much pleased that uncle had preserved these letters that he wouldn't himself destroy them, but put them by as they were in his desk. He mentioned to Cousin Hugh how pleased he was to have them, and Cousin said he had not himself come across them, but he was glad they had, by some chance, gotten into the box and come to Father's hand. Cousin Hugh would never have said that if he had known. Now Uncle Godfrey had written a paper to say how. Having discovered that misrepresentations had been made him about father, he returned to his first intention of dividing his property equally between his two nephews, according to an old will, the signers and witnesses of which were all living. I heard Cousin Hugh myself say, that evening of the 4th, that this paper did away with the new will, though it wasn't gotten out in form, because of poor uncle's meeting with the accident so soon after." I mean, the accident that caused his death. He never was himself after the hurt, and that is the reason he didn't do anything to set the matter of the wills right. This very paper was tied up with the bundle of letters father had found, but as he never came across it, it is plain he only looked at the first letter or two of the package to make sure what they were. But after poor father's death, mother untied the package— Cousin Algin was by when she did it, and heard her say she would never part with them. She said this as she tied up the parcel again, and we all heard her say it. There was the paper among the letters, but she didn't notice it, maybe because she was crying so hard. Cousin Algin noticed it, though, but it seems she didn't think anything of it at the time. Afterward, she mentioned it to Cousin Hugh, and they got uneasy about it, because Cousin Algin fancied, even at the distance across the table where she sat from Mother, she recognized Uncle Godfrey's handwriting. Well, they never forgot that paper, and Cousin Algin took care to get hold of it with the letters at the time of dear Mother's death. When I learned from their talk how it had never been destroyed, I looked for it in Cousin Hugh's secretary." but neither paper nor letters were there. Ever after that it was my wonder what Cousin Hugh could have done with them, and I always seemed to feel as if I was to find them out and bring the papers to light. One day, when things had got almost at their worst with us, I became sort of desperate and went to Cousin Algin herself and told her all I knew. Here Hilda followed with a relation of her visit to Mrs. Kingsley, her disappointment, and her after-visit to her father's old friend, the lawyer. "'My hopes died out after that,' she continued. "'I felt that law and justice were in this matter so very far apart that they could never come together. If I have had a hope in all this time, it has been that, at some future day, my cousins would feel remorseful for what they had done and make willing restitution to us. But there is no thought of that now.' God has brought terrible affliction upon them in the loss of the dear little children they were so wrapped up in. Yet, far as I can learn, it has in no way softened their hearts. They know of our poverty and our suffering, yet they do nothing for us. The better way for all would be that this willing restitution shall be made. Very gravely said Barbara, as Hilda came to a termination of her story, But with poor young creatures, suffering as you are all suffering now, it must be left to no slow working of good in the hearts of those two to bring it about. Knowledge that our sin is discovered is a strong spur to remorse, and with remorse comes the wish to return upon the past. I know something of your cousin Hugh Kingsley, and believe a plan I have thought of may bring all right, without the delay or distress of a course of law. And I must be seeing about it now, she added, rising briskly. Too much depends on the doings of this morning to permit Barbara Strand to sit idly in the warmth of this fire, though good Dorothy Moppet has piled on the coal to make it tempting.' She put on her quaint old bonnet and wrapped her cloak about her, then stood hesitating, her eye upon Hilda. No, I won't, she then said. I'll not venture, as I would wish, to take a look before I go at the poor babe upstairs. It's a thing that sets me dreaming, and when I have acting to do, I must put dreaming far from me. Tell them, she added. I go to do all I can for them, and that when I come back I will see them, then the work will be put into other hands, and if a touch of her weakness comes over old Barbara, it can do no one hurt. End of chapter 38